0: This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hammerich. Today on episode five of season three, we've got a very special crossover episode. What you're about to hear is an interview recorded for the War Against Weeds podcast. Co-hosts, Dr. Sarah Lancaster and Dr. Joe Eichle are both weed scientists, Sarah at Kansas State University and Joe at North Dakota State University. Their podcast can be found on all the major podcast platforms where they help listeners understand what it takes for farmers to fight the war against weeds. Hence the name. Joining Sarah and Joe on today's episode are Dr. Lucas Hegg, the Northwest Area Agronomist for Kansas State University, and Jeannie Falk-Jones, a trained weed scientist and multi-county agronomist for Kansas State University Extension, also based in Northwest Kansas. In today's episode, Sarah, Joe, Lucas, and Jeannie talk mostly about field peas and dry beans, including the growth of these crops in their area of Kansas and what's working when it comes to weed management. Make sure you stick around toward the end of the episode for a really interesting conversation on herbicide carryover. So I'm going to turn this special crossover episode over to co host Sarah Lancaster and Joe Eichle to lead the conversation with Lucas Hegg and Jeannie Falk-Jones.
1: Welcome back to the War Against Weeds podcast. I'm Sarah Lancaster here today to host a kind of unique crossover episode. So today I've got Joe Eichle here as the co-host and Jeannie Falk-Jones, who is a multi-county agronomist with K-State Research and Extension, Lucas Haig, who is the Northwest Area Agronomist with K-State Research and Extension, and I'll give them a second to introduce themselves a bit more here before we get started. Also, if you're seeing screenshots or video, we've got Tim Hammerich with us, who's helping out with the crossover aspect of the episode. So we are going to talk today about weed management in pulse crops, not a super major acreage sort of crop, but definitely something that's important for the states of Kansas and North Dakota and Nebraska and other states as well. Well, I'm excited to talk about this today because I still have a lot Mm. to learn (laughs) about pulse crop production. So let's start off with a kind of a general question here. Jeannie and Lucas, exactly which pulse crops do you guys work with in Northwest Kansas?
2: Yeah, so I'll start off. So Jeannie, I'll let her talk about, you know, she's been fortunate to be able to work with a pretty established pulse crop industry uh, with the dry bean growers. I've been involved with some other work starting in 2009, where we were looking at other pulse crops as, as alternatives, essentially alternatives to fallow. So like wheat corn fallow, wheat sorghum fallow would be kind of our base dry land rotations out here. And so our growers are looking for alternatives to that fallow period. And so we started working with Springfield Pea in 2009. Uh, at a number of trials, uh, and Jeannie was involved in those. We had trials at Colby, Tribune, Garden City, and down at Bushland, Texas, where we looked at spring pea. We also looked at safflower, which is not a pulse crop, but another potential alternative. And then that work has grown from there. In 2014, we started a Springfield pea variety testing program. Uh, We did see acres peak out. We did get over 20, 25,000 acres of peas in the state at one point. Well, let's see, that was 2014. Then 2018, we started working with winter peas. Uh, that actually seems to have some opportunities with it. And then at other times, we've looked at chickpeas. We're going to have some work going this year and cow pea. Uh, we've messed with lentils. So kind of a variety of things, but really spring pea and now winter pea, uh, kind of remains the, the focus. And then, and then, of course, collaborating with Jeannie on dry bean work.
3: So as Lucas alluded to, yeah, we've worked quite a bit on the pinto bean side of things, specifically pintos, although we've looked at, as Lucas mentioned, several other types of dry beans. We actually have a grower-owned cooperative located in Northwest Kansas that is focused completely on dry beans. And so they have growers that basically buy the seed from that co-op. They are members of the co-op. They have delivery to that co-op. And then that group actually has a cleaning and bagging facility that handles not just the beans that are grown here in Northwest Kansas, but are also bringing in other beans from around the area to get those also bagged. And so, yes, we have a very motivated, very excited group of farmers who produce pinto beans, basically, and other dry beans. And so, as we're working with those growers they are maybe not your typical growers. They are kind of want to be at the head of the curve. And so they are asking for specific research projects or are asking for specific herbicide questions on what is and what is not working. And so they're a fun group to work with because they want to have research on their ground and they want to be part of this. And they want to have field days where we go and look at other types of beans that are around the area. And so a very fun group to work with. And so that is a, it's a good pairing for us on the research and extension side for Lucas and I to work with this group, because everybody is very much working towards a common goal on this. And, and, you know, sometimes there's challenges working with this big of a group of people, but it's a really rewarding experience to work on that on the dry bean side of things.
1: So Lucas, you kind of hinted at this, that you're looking at stuff largely for plugging into that summer fallow period, but could you guys talk a little more broadly about how your crops fit into the rotation? You know, Jeannie, you referenced that your, your dry bean farmers are really motivated to figure out how to make them work. Why do they want to make dry beans work specifically in this area?
3: So I think dry beans are a really good alternative, especially, and primarily we're looking at them on irrigated ground. There has been some production on dry land, except, you know, many times our moisture is just so variable (laughs) to get good production of dry beans on dry land. And so primarily on irrigated ground. And so they're a really good rotation crop, especially when we have a lot of irrigated corn. We have water needs at a little bit of a different time. And they seem to be a little more economically viable for those versus just solely irrigated corn. And so I think it's a really good rotation crop for a few of our growers. We don't have a ton of acres, but it it really does fit in that rotation on irrigated ground. And some guys, we have lower water capabilities. And so we are splitting pivots and, you know, being a little bit uh, more inventive on getting them fit into some of this. It also Helps a little bit on planting and harvesting time. You know, we're just offset just a little bit by using the Pinto specifically to fit in some of those rotations. And so a good fit in that realm.
1: So a little bit of a tangent. I know we've got listeners from kind of eastern Kansas, Missouri, Iowa, Indiana. So, you know, in those situations, we would just plug soybeans into that corn alternative, right? So what about dry beans makes them the preference over... soybeans that a lot of people in our our audience might be more familiar with?
3: Well, I think dry beans fit good in our area. One, we have a ready market for these growers that have created this market. Um, And so for us, they are a good fit in that respect, dry beans. Also, we actually like to have a more dry environment to help when we're struggling against some of the Fungus type, white mold specifically, fungus type of diseases, and so having a drier environment where we can add water when needed um, seems to be a really good fit. I think on the pinto beans.
2: Another key point there is that dry beans can tolerate our calcareous, our high pH soils a lot better than soybeans, and so we can plug them in as an option uh, on a lot of acres where soybeans wouldn't be viable due to iron chlorosis.
1: How about from the field pea side, Lucas? What do you think about?
2: Well, I think, you know, both field peas and and as Jeannie's talked about dry beans, you know, big picture, you know, if you look at our rotations out here and we just discussed our challenges with soybeans, they're basically grass dominated rotations. I mean, we don't have that many broadleaf options. We've had some limited acres of, uh, you know, we used to be a fairly significant area of sunflowers. We've seen that acreage taper over the years, but in terms of non-grass options, uh, we don't have many. And so it's a way to diversify that rotation, which I'm probably the only weed scientist not in the group this morning, but, you know, we think about breaking pest patterns and and, uh, and Jeannie mentioned some of the things, John, you know, are short water irrigation, being able to stagger, you know, same thing on dry land, you know, everything in this part of the world is about how do we get the biggest economic return out of water. And it doesn't matter whether it's precipitation or coming on through a pivot. So even on dry land, it's about, okay, during that fallow period, a lot of that precipitation we we receive, we would lose to evaporation. You know, we're only about 20% efficient at storing that rainfall we get during that fallow period. So, what if we can take that 80% that we would lose to evaporation anyways and turn that into something marketable like field peas? And so, it's really about maximizing that resource, diversifying the rotations, and then what that brings to the table in terms of breaking up some of those pest patterns and diversified markets. You know, uh, the whole shift towards plant-based protein, you know, most of our production here, it's wheat for domestic and wheat for export. It's corn for ethanol and beef. You look at everything that's happening in in the protein world, you know, maybe there's an opportunity for our growers to get on board there.
1: What are the primary weed management challenges in field pea and dry beans in northwest Kansas and y'all's territory?
2: So, yeah, I guess I can start on, you know, on the pea side, you know, really our biggest challenges in, are the same in, in almost all of our cropping systems. And, they, you know, here a couple of years ago, if we would surveyed our producers, they would have told you number one was kochia. And of course, that's quickly been replaced by Palmer Amaranth. That obviously is our our biggest challenge. And actually, you know, I I feel like on field pea, we're a little bit stronger in terms of some of the pre-options that we have, some of the residual options we have, you know, Spartan-like products that we can really get some good residual out of. But, you know, our biggest challenge in all these crops is there's not a lot of post-emerge options. And so it's so critical that we get growers on board with with a good, strong pre-package because we just, uh, we don't have a lot of options after that.
3: I would very much echo what Lucas is saying on, on both the weed pressure, you know, primarily Palmer amaranth is the first thing that we hear from our growers. And yes, we just don't have a lot of options to come back over the top to get after those broadleaf weed crops, specifically Palmer amaranth. And, and you don't have to look hardly at all for fields where we have Palmer amaranth that are a problem, and so you need a good, very, very strong pre-program. And on dry beans, on pinto specifically, there's you know a few options that are really good options. Now, some of those require some pre-plant incorporation to get in, get watered in, get activated to get going. Um, and so we have to be very, very good and very proactive on the front side of things on dry beans. The other thing that I would add on that is nightshade. And that is not a weed that we talk about in any other crop, but we really do not want to see nightshade plants um, out in the field. And I've been known to just kind of walk through plots as I'm writing and just whole nightshade plants, cause they're out there. We don't typically see them showing up in anything else, but we always seem to find them in our dry bean fields. And the reason we don't want nightshade is because they do have those berries with the dark juice in them and it will stain our beans and that causes problems with market class. And so um, really do not want to find nightshade out in the fields. And so specifically growers are looking for good herbicide options that will provide both Palmer amaranth control and nightshade control. The other thing that we also don't want to see in our pinto bean fields is uh, volunteer corn because volunteer corn is hard to clean out. The grain is hard to clean out of pinto beans and so, Also do not want to find it in there. And that will cause lots of problems when we get to the cleaning process and getting it bagged. And so, yeah, those are the main things. And so I think probably more so on the dry bean side than maybe the pea side, because some of that's easier to clean out. But on the dry bean side, everybody wants a very, very clean field. And there's just not a lot of options like Lucas alluded to.
4: I was just going to say, I think it's worth, kind of pointed out some of the limitations with post-emergence herbicides. And so if I focus in on dry bean, for instance, really for broadleaf weed control, we have bazagran or benzazon, I should say, and then Amazamox or raptor. And then for us in certain geographies, we can use formesifen as well. And I'm guessing as far west as you guys are, if you can, you have to have it under a pivot, even if you can use formesifen or reflex. And so as we think about things like kochia and, and palmer amaranth, you know, kochia, if we catch it very small, we can stand a chance with Bazigran, Bentazon, very small. And usually a split application is what we've seen works best. With the Mazamox, we basically have resistance. And we can use Pursuit 2 or Mazethpir. But kochia and palmer amaranth, we kind of assume ALS resistance. And so that means that's not a viable option. So that just kind of hammers home the point that the broadleaf weed. Control options we have are limited based on the weed spectrum and the two that they mentioned as most problematic. There's another reason why they're very problematic in these pulse crops.
1: So, Lucas, I was going to follow up because you know that I've had this kind of unique experience working with the folks out of Mizzou on the weed electrocution. And one of the places that I have heard you talk about farmers specifically using it is in the pulse crops, right? Is that correct? Do you want to talk about that a little
4: bit?
2: Yeah, I, I don't know uh, I, how knowledgeable I am on that. I just, I know, you know, Jeannie and I have interacted with some growers that are they're part of the grower cooperative over here who have had some success using uh, the electrocution as a as a post method in, in dry beans and, and have gotten along pretty, well, uh, they've put their money where their mouth is. They bought one and, and we're talking like buying a second unit. And so uh, they seem to be fairly happy with that. And, you know, I know they've used it in their dry beans. They've also used it in some non-GMO soy beans that they're growing. And so, yeah, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that some of these alternative, uh, you know, weed control practices are, are going to find a home. I mean, when we're so limited on on effective herbicide options, you know, we find some other things to do.
1: I think that's it, even though it's not a lot of detail, I think it's an interesting story just to think about where some of the alternative practices really fit and can can have a home for folks.
2: To follow up on that just a little bit, you know, we got a weed scientist, uh, you know, Randy Curry down at Garden City, who's pretty famous for saying, you know, there's no better herbicide than dark. And, uh, you know, I think we're so limited in some of our, our, you know, herbicide options. This is where management really plays a role too. You know, I think back to you know a lot of the new pea growers I've worked with over the years, we've put a lot of effort into how do you get a stand? because if if, if you've got a good solid stand out there and if your pre holds a little bit, pea can be quite competitive once it gets up and going. But if you got a thin stand, no good comes of that. And um, and it also ties into some work you know Jeanie and I've been doing on on the dry bean side, looking at row spacing. We're partnering with the folks at University of Nebraska Panhandle Station on some interesting relay crop work. What if we actually grow wheat in between the rows of dry beans? You know, again, back to this, we don't have a lot of herbicide options, so what can we do to provide lots of dark out there and in, in competition?
3: And honestly, that row spacing study that Lucas alluded to was really because our growers are saying, what can we do to give more shade out here in the field? And so this is a study that's looking at row spacing by seeding rate, by different actually pinto bean varieties. And the reason for the differences in varieties is because we know that they have different plant architecture, that some of them are more upright, some of them are more vine type. And very interesting, our growers this last year, I was out in the field rating plots one day and they swung by and it was in the evening and it was a father and son. And the the dad said, you know what, I would rather pay higher seed cost, knowing that I'm going to get more competition and more dark out here to hold back any weeds that might be trying to come through. Because he said things happen and our herbicides may not be as effective for as long as we want, but I want that competition out there. And so I thought that was a really good point that they are in narrow rows, higher plant populations, trying to get that dark herbicide to work out there.
1: What are some rotation concerns with these crops, specifically kind of maybe looking towards herbicide carryover types of concerns?
2: Yes, that's that's been a huge issue for us in, in the adoption of field peas has been a carryover concern because what really, you know, all of our peas are going in either after corn or sorghum. And so if we look at some of those products that give us good residual control of Palmer and kochia in those crops... Uh, especially in the HPPDs, they give us pretty significant carryover risk. Uh- Uh, into the peas. And so interestingly, we we do see differences among products, even though the labels read the same. uh, We do see differences in those products in terms of their danger to subsequent pea crop. And so a lot of that's been learned by grower experience. And so guys have just kind of had to figure out for themselves how to make that work. In terms of rotation concerns after peas, we really don't have any. You know, our peas are always going to being seeded to winter wheat uh, that fall. And so the products that we're using on the peas is really not, you know, giving us any concern going that way. But it's mostly the the crop ahead of peas is where we really got to watch out for uh, the products that we're using. And and the grower mindset with that, it's like, okay, uh, you know, for example, mesotryon's is the one that we, by far, we have the biggest issue with on peas. And so a lot of guys, you know, we said, okay, you know, you got to be flexible. You know, if you're rolling along in your corn crop, and you need to use mesotreon to get the Palmer under control, do it and just recognize that, okay, that field's not going to peas next year, maybe a different field will. You know, we got to be aware of those carryover effects, but we also can't forfeit good weed control today for what we might want to do tomorrow and, and trying to find that balance.
1: So Lucas, you reminded me of something that I used to talk about when I taught undergrad weed science in a different life, and that is the importance of selecting the right crop the right field and making that match that's a big deal for you guys with peas and and beans right
2: yeah both from a carryover standpoint and a and a weed pressure standpoint you know uh we know we've got a large seed bank there that's that's something that's going to our decision right in terms of what crop and what tools we've got available
3: and fortunately some of this the lucas is talking about with having different sensitivities to different herbicides even though the label reads the same as a bit of a trial and error in some cases that we get phone calls about things that something is going on and we don't know why we're having problems out here and so that's when we go out and really start to dig through herbicide history and what has been going on in that field knowing that okay One, we struggled to get an establishment of the crop of the peas or dry beans this time. So can we replant them? Will we have any different effects? You know, is there something else going on besides herbicide carryover? And so sometimes you kind of have to be a detective to kind of get in and kind of get some of that figured out on. Especially it seems like Lucas would come to my office and be like, what do you think this looks like? Do you think this is herbicide carryover? You know, and so part of it is just. Looking at the pictures, actually seeing what's going on in the field and knowing if it is herbicide or if it is something else disease-wise or something along those lines. Because especially in some of these peas, this is completely new trying to get that crop established as a rotation option out here. So part of that is some the learning curve on on a new crop (laughs) for sure on some of that. I had a very interesting call on herbicide carryover on dry beans this last year, and I don't know that we quite ever figured out what was going on, but we did not end up putting those back in that field because I couldn't tell you why they were basically dying off, but I think it was herbicide related. And so sometimes it is truly switching up what the plan was on some of this because that's not an option for what we have going on right there. So on the rotation side of things, I think in many cases our growers who have dry beans as part of their rotation on fields, know what field is going to dry beans. And that is planned. I would agree with Lucas is that once you use something ahead of this, that we know it's going to be a problem, we know that it's a problem. And so I think it's important to realize that a lot of our growers are pretty sensitive to that. And We're talking a relatively high input cost on some of these crops. And so we don't want to mess this up and have issues as we're going forward. Also rotating out of dry beans, there's not a lot that we're looking at that's going to be a problem going back. Although the option for reflux over the top has complicated that a little bit going down the line, but I always want growers to stop and think about where it fits into the rotation and know what we've got going on in the field before we get ourselves into a bit of a pickle and struggle to get out of it on herbicide rotation. I don't think that's any different than we have with other crops, but I do think that pinto beans or dry beans in general are a little more sensitive to some of these and sometimes you can't actually find them on some of the herbicide labels and so we struggle with that on some of these specialty crops that this just we just don't have the information and so that's when we make phone calls to neighboring weed scientists and say hey what's your gut reaction on some of this and so just so that we have a little bit of a better feeling because when they're not on the label it really kind of leaves you at a bit of a loss on what the plan should be.
1: All right. So thank you to Lucas and Jeannie for joining us today. Uh, we always like to give our guests an opportunity to kind of do a little shameless self promotion. Do you guys have any social media or websites or other resources that you want to use the podcast to, to share with a variety of folks?
2: So, yeah, I'm on Twitter and it's at Lucas, L U C A S A H A G. And so try and be active on there. And then we also have. Uh, our webpage www.northwest.ksu.edu slash agronomy.
3: And I'm also on social media. So on Twitter at crops with genie. And it's crops with. And then genie is J-E-A-N-N-E. Um, I'm also pretty active on Facebook at K-State Sunflower District Agronomy. And on our website is sunflower.ksu.edu slash agronomy.
1: So oh, yeah, they do a great job with social media and just farmer programming I'm in that Northwest part of Kansas. So I'm grateful to Lucas and Jeannie for everything they do and for joining us today. Um, and we're also grateful to the listeners for uh, listening to this episode. And we hope that y'all will join us again next time. Thanks.
0: Well, thank you so much to Sarah and Joe at the War Against Weeds podcast for this great crossover episode. And of course, thank you to Lucas and Jeannie for all the great information. All four of these people can be found on Twitter, and we'll go ahead and provide a link to you in the show notes for their profiles. If you're a subscriber to this show, to the Growing Pulse Crops podcast, we've got a great episode coming your way here in just a couple weeks with Chris Wigert of Healthy Food Ingredients. That's the way the food industry has kind of gone in the last 10 years or so, is really focused on those allergens. So all of our gluten processing is in Watertown or Hastings, Nebraska. All of our allergen-free processing, which includes no more soy, is in Moorhead, Minnesota or Valley City, North Dakota. You know, the gluten-free market obviously drove some of that. So we started separating our facilities by allergen. Well, make sure you're a subscriber to the show on your podcast platform of choice so you can catch that upcoming episode as well. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, the USA Dry Pea and Lental Council, and the North Central Extension Risk Management Education Program. We're releasing these episodes two times per month throughout the growing season, and we want to make sure that the information is relevant to you. If you're finding this useful, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and feel free to tweet us by using the hashtag growingpulsecrops. We'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks.